6. That those about him might not understand what he writ, which he afterwards copied out fair in the journal that he kept. His virtues were wonderful, when he was made to believe that his uncle was guilty of conspiring the death of the other counselors. He upon that abandoned him. Barnaby Fitzpatrick was his favorite, and when he sent him to travel, he writ off to him to keep good company, to avoid excess and luxury, and to improve himself in those things that might render him capable of employment at his return. He was afterwards made Lord of Upper Accessory, in Ireland, by Queen Elizabeth, and did answer the hopes this excellent king had of him. He was very merciful in his nature, which appeared in his unwillingness to sign the warrant for burning the maid of Count. He took great care to have his debts well paid, reckoning that a prince who breaks his faith and loses his credit, has thrown up that which he can never recover, and made himself liable to perpetual distrust and extreme contempt. He took special care of the petitions that were given him by poor and oppressed people, but his great zeal for religion crowned all the rest it was a true tenderness of conscience, founded on the love of God and his neighbor. These extraordinary qualities, set off with great sweetness and affability, made him universally beloved by his people. Burnet, the hunted stag, what sounds are on the mountain blast, like bullet from the arbalist, was it the hunted quarry passed right up and laid side? So near, so rapidly, he dashed, yon like and bow has scarcely plashed into the torrent's tide. Aye, the good hound may be beneath, the hunter whined his horn, he dared ye through the flooded teeth, as a warrior in his scorn, dash the red rowel in the steed, spur, laggards, while ye may, St. Hubert's staff to a stripling reed, he dies no death today, forward, nay, waste not idle breath, gallants, ye win no greenwood wreath, his antlers dance above the heath, like chieftain's plumed helm, right onward for the western peak, where breaks the sky in one white streak, see, Isabel, in bold relief, to fancy's eye, Glenard Mee's chief, guarding his ancient realm, so motionless, so noiseless there, his foot on rock, his head in air, like sculptor's breathing stone, then, snorting from the rapid race, snuffs the free air a moment's space, glares grimly on the baffled chase, and seeks the covered loam, hunting has been a favorite sport in Britain for many centuries, Dionysius BC 50 tells us that the North Britons lived, in great part, upon the food they procured by hunting, Strabo states that the dogs bred in Britain were highly esteemed on the continent, on account of their excellent qualities for hunting, and Caesar tells us that venison constituted a great portion of the food of the Britons, who did not eat hares. Hunting was also in ancient times a royal and noble sport, Alfred the Great hunted at twelve years of age, Athelstan, Edward the Confessor, Harold, William the Conqueror, William Rufus, and John were all good huntsmen, Edward I.I. reduced hunting to a science, and established rules for its practice, Henry I.D. appointed a master of the game, Edward I.I.I. hunted with sixty couples of stag hounds, Elizabeth was a famous huntswoman, and James I. preferred hunting to hawking or shooting, the bishops and abbots of the Middle Ages hunted with great state, ladies also joined in the chase from the earliest times, and a lady's hunting dress in the 15th century scarcely differed from the riding habit of the present day, Sir Walter Scott, John Bunyan and his wife, Elizabeth his wife, actuated by his undaunted spirit, applied to the House of Lords for his release, and, according to her relation, she was told, they could do nothing, but that his releasement was committed to the judges at the next assizes, 
The judges were Sir Matthew Hale and Mr. Justice Twisden, and a remarkable contrast appeared between the well-known neatness of the one, and fury of the other. Elizabeth came before them, and, stating her husband's case, prayed for justice, Judge Twisden, says John Bunyan, snapped her rope, and angrily told her that I was a convicted person, and could not be released unless I would promise to preach no more. Elizabeth, the Lord's told me that releasement was committed to you, and you give me neither releasement nor relief. My husband is unlawfully in prison, and you are bound to discharge him. Twisden, he has been lawfully convicted. Elizabeth, it is false. For when they said, Do you confess the indictment? He answered, At the meetings where he preached, they had God's presence among them. Twisden, will your husband leave preaching? If he will do so, then send for him. Elizabeth, my lord, he dares not leave off preaching as long as he can speak. But, good my lords, consider that we have four small children, one of them blind, and that they have nothing to live upon while their father is in prison. But the charity of Christian people, Sir Matthew Hale, alas, poor woman, Twisden, poverty is your cloak, for I hear your husband is better maintained by running up and down a preaching than by following his calling, Sir Matthew Hale, what is his calling, Elizabeth, a tinker, please you my lord, and because he is a tinker, and a poor man, therefore he is despised and cannot have justice, Sir Matthew Hale, I am truly sorry we can do you no good. Sitting here we can only act as the law gives us warrant, and we have no power to reverse the sentence. Although it may be erroneous, what your husband said was taken for a confession, and he stands convicted. There I'll and therefore, no course for you but to apply to the king for a pardon, or to sue out a writ of error, and, the indictment, or subsequent proceedings, being shown to be contrary to law, the sentence shall be reversed, and your husband shall be set at liberty. I am truly sorry for your pitiable case. I wish I could serve you. But I fear I can do you no good. Little do we know what is for our permanent good. Had Bunyan then been discharged and allowed to enjoy liberty, he no doubt would have returned to his trade. Filling up his intervals of leisure with field preaching, his name would not have survived his own generation. And he could have done little for the religious improvement of mankind. The prison doors were to shut upon him for twelve years. Being cut off from the external world, he communed with his own soul, and, inspired by him who touched Isaiah's hallowed lips with fire, he composed the noblest of allegories, the merit of which was first discovered by the lowly, but which is now lauded by the most refined critics, and which has done more to awaken piety, and to enforce the precepts of Christian morality, than all the sermons that have been published by all the prelates of the Anglican Church, Lord Camel's Lives of the Judges the long-eared African fox. This singular variety of the fox was first made known to naturalists in 1820. After the return of Dilolan from South Africa, it is an inhabitant of the mountains in the neighborhood of the Cape of Good Hope. But it is so rare that little is known of its habits in a state of nature. The engraving was taken from a specimen which has been lately placed in the Zoological Society's gardens in the Regent's Park. It is extremely quick of hearing and there is something in the general expression of the head which suggests a resemblance to the long-eared bat. Its fur is very thick, and the brush is larger than that of our common European fox. The skin of the fox is in many species very valuable, that of another kind of fox at the Cape of Good Hope is so much in request among the natives as a covering for the cold season, that many of the Bechuanas are solely employed in hunting the animal down with dogs, 
or laying snares in the places to which it is known to resort. In common with all other foxes, those of Africa are great enemies to birds which lay their eggs upon the ground, and their movements are, in particular, closely watched by the ostrich during the laying season. When the fox has surmounted all obstacles in procuring eggs, he has to encounter the difficulty of getting at their contents, but even for this task his cunning finds an expedient, and it is that of pushing them forcibly along the ground until they come in contact with some substance hard enough to break them. When the contents are speedily disposed of, the natives, from having observed the anxiety of the ostrich to keep this animal from robbing her nest, avail themselves of this solicitude to lure the bird to its destruction, for, seeing that it runs to the nest the instant a fox appears, they fasten a dog near it, and conceal themselves close by, and the ostrich, on approaching to drive away the supposed fox, is frequently shot by the real hunter. The fur of the red fox of America is much valued as an article of trade, and about 8,000 are annually imported into England from the fur countries, where the animal is very abundant, especially in the wooded parts. Foxes of various colors are also common in the fur countries of North America, and a rare and valuable variety is the black or silver fox. Dr. Richardson states that seldom more than four or five of this variety are taken in a season at one post. Though the hunters no sooner find out the haunts of one, than they use every art to catch it, because its fur fetches six times the price of any other fur produced in North America. This fox is sometimes found of a rich deep glossy black, the tip of the brush alone being white, in general. However, it is silvered over the end of each of the long hairs of the fur, producing a beautiful appearance. The Arctic fox resembles greatly the European species, but is considerably smaller, and, Owing to the great quantity of white woolly fur with which it is covered, is somewhat like a little shop dog. The brush is very large and full, affording an admirable covering for the nose and feet, to which it acts as a muff when the animal sleeps. The fur is in the greatest perfection during the months of winter, when the color gradually becomes from an ashy gray to a full and pure white, and is extremely thick, covering even the sole lace of the feet. Captain Lyon has given very interesting accounts of the habits of this animal and describes it as being cleanly and free from any unpleasant smell, it inhabits the most northern lands hitherto discovered. Mount Tabor, the plain of Isdrilon, in Palestine, is often mentioned in sacred history, as the great battlefield of the Jewish and other nations, under the names of the Valley of Megiddo and the Valley of Jireel, and by Josephus as the Great Plain. The convenience of its extent and situation for military action and display has, from the earliest periods of history down to our own day, caused its surface at certain intervals to be moistened with the blood, and covered with the bodies of conflicting warriors of almost every nation under heaven. This extensive plain, exclusive of three great arms which stretch eastward towards the valley of the Jordan, may be said to be in the form of an acute triangle, having the measure of 13 or 14 miles on the north, about 18 on the east, and above 20 on the southwest. Before the verdure of spring and early summer has been parched up by the heat and drought of the late summer and autumn, the view of the Great Plain Island from its fertility and beauty, very delightful. In June, yellow fields of grain, with green patches of millet and cotton, checker the landscape like a carpet. The plain itself is almost without villages, but there are several on the slopes of the enclosing hills, especially on the side of Mount Carmel. On the borders of this plain Mount Tabor stands out alone in magnificent grandeur. Seen from the southwest its fine proportions present a semi-globular appearance, 
but from the northwest it more resembles a truncated cone, by an ancient path, which winds considerably, one may ride to the summit, where is a small oblong plain with the foundations of ancient buildings, the view from the summit is declared by Lord Nugent to be the most splendid he could recollect having ever seen from any natural height, the sides of the mountain are mostly covered with bushes and woods of oak trees, with occasionally pistachio trees, presenting a beautiful appearance, and affording a welcome and agreeable shade, there are various tracks of pit sides, often crossing each other, and the ascent generally occupies about an hour, the crest of the mountain is table land, 600 or 700 yards in height from north to south, and about half as much across, and a flat field of about an acre occurs at a level of some 20 or 25 feet lower than the eastern brow, there are remains of several small ruined tanks on the crest, which still catch the rainwater dripping through the crevices of the rock, and preserve it cool and clear, it is said, throughout the year, the tops of this range of mountains are barren, but the slopes and valleys afford pasturage, and are capable of cultivation, from the numerous springs which are met with in all directions, cultivation island however, chiefly found on the seaward slopes, there many flourishing villages exist, and every inch of ground is turned to account by the industrious natives, here, amidst the crags of the rocks, are to be seen the remains of the renowned cedars with which Lebanon once abounded, but a much larger proportion of firs, sycamores, mulberry trees, fig trees, and vines now exist, Una and the lion, she, that most faithful lady, all this while, forsaken, woeful, solitary maid, far from the people's throng, as in exile, in wilderness and wasteful desert strayed to seek her knight, who, subtly betrayed by that false vision which th enchanter wrought, had her abandoned, she, of not afraid, him through the woods and wide wastes daily sought, yet wished for tidings of him none unto her brought, one day, nigh weary of the irksome way, from her unhasty beast she did alight, and on the grass her dainty limbs did lay in secret shadow, far from all men's sight, from her fair head her fillet she undight, and laid her stole aside, her angel face, as the great eye that lights the earth, shone bright, and made a sunshine in that shady place, that never mortal eye beheld such heavenly grace, it fortuned that, from out the thicket would a ramping lion rushed suddenly, and hunting greedy after savage blood, the royal virgin helpless did espy, at whom, with gaping mouth full greedily to seize and to devour her tender course, when he did run, he stopped ere he drew nigh, and loosing all his rage in quick remorse, as with the sight amazed, forgot his furious force, then coming near, he kissed her weary feet, and licked her lily hand with fawning tongue, as he her wronged innocence did meet, oh, how can beauty master the most strong, and simple truth subdue intent of wrong, his proud submission, and his yielded pride, though dreading death, when she had marked long, she felt compassion in her heart to slide, and drizzling tears to gush that might not be denied, and with her tears she poured a sad complaint, that softly echoed from the neighboring wood, while sad to see her sorrowful constraint, the kindly beast upon her gazing stood, with pity calmed he lost all angry mood, at length, in close breast shutting up her pain, arose the virgin born of heavenly brood, and on her snowy palfrey rode again to seek and find her knight, if him she might attain, the lion would not leave her desolate, but with her went along, as a strong guard of her chaste person, and a faithful mate of her sad troubles and misfortunes hard, still when she slept, he kept both watch and ward, and when she waked, 
he waited diligent with humble service to her will prepared, from her fair eyes he took commandment, and ever by her looks conceived her intent, Spencer, Danish encampment, seven miles from the seaport of Boston, in Lincolnshire, lies the rural town of Swineshead, once itself a port, the sea having flowed up to the marketplace, where there was a harbour, the name of Swineshead is familiar to every reader of English history, from its having been the resting place of King John, after he lost the whole of his baggage, and narrowly escaped with his life, when crossing the marshes from Lynn to Sleaford, the castle of which latter place was then in his possession, the king halted at the abbey, close to the town of Swineshead, which place he left on horseback, but being taken ill, was moved in a litter to Sleaford, and thence to his castle at Newark, where he died on the following day, in the year 1216. Apart from this traditional interest, Swineshead has other antiquarian and historical associations, the circular Danish encampment, 60 yards in diameter, surrounded by a double fosse, was, doubtless, a post of importance, when the Danes, or Northmen, carried their ravages through England in the time of Ethelred I and the whole country passed permanently into the Danish hands about A.D. 877, the incessant inroads of the Danes, who made constant descents on various parts of the coast, burning the towns and villages, and laying waste the country in all directions, led to that stain upon the English character, the Danish massacre, the troops collected to oppose these marauders always lost courage and fled, and their leaders, not seldom, set them the example, in 1002, peace was purchased for a sum of L24.000 and a large supply of provisions, meantime, the king and his counselors resolved to have recourse to a most atrocious expedient for their future security, it had been the practice of the English kings, from the time of Athelstane, to have great numbers of Danes in their pay, as guards, or household troops, and these, it is said, they quartered on their subjects, one on each house, the household troops, like soldiers in general, paid great attention to their dress and appearance, and thus became very popular with the generality of people, but they also occasionally behaved with great insolence, and were also strongly suspected of holding secret intelligence with their piratical countrymen. It was therefore resolved to massacre the Huskarls, as they were called, and their families, throughout England. Secret orders to this effect were sent to all parts, and on Street Bryce's Day, November 14, 1002. The Danes were everywhere fallen on and slain. The ties of affinity for many of them had married and settled in the country were disregarded, even Gunhilda, sister to Swine, king of Denmark, though a Christian, was not spared, and with her last breath she declared that her death would bring the greatest evils upon England. The words of Gunhilda proved prophetic. Swine, burning for revenge and glad of a pretext for war, soon made his appearance on the south coast and during four years he spread devastation through all parts of the country, until the king Ethelred agreed to give him L30.000 and provisions as before for peace, and the realm thus had rest for two years, but this short peace was but a prelude to further disturbances, and indeed for two centuries, dating from the reign of Egbert, England was destined to become a prey to these fierce and fearless invaders, the old abbey of Swineshead was demolished in 1610, and the present structure, known as Swineshead Abbey, was built from the materials, the nameless stream beautiful stream, my rock and dell there's not an inch in all thy course I have not tracked, I know thee well, I know where blossoms the yellow gorse, I know where waves the pale bluebell, 
and where the orchis and violets dwell, I know where the foxglove rears its head, and where the heather tufts are spread, I know where the meadow sweets exhale, and the white valerians load the gale, I know the spot the bees love best, and where the linnet has built her nest, I know the bushes the grouse frequent, and the nooks where the shy deer browse the bent, I know each tree to my fountain head the lady birches, slim and fair, the feathery larch, the rowan's red, the brambles trailing their tangled hair, and each is linked to my waking thought by some remembrance fancy fraught, yet, lovely stream, and known to fame, thou hast used, and flowed, and leaked, and run, ever since time its course begun, without a record, without a name, I ask the shepherd on the hill he knew thee but as a common rill, I ask the farmer's blue-eyed daughter she knew thee but as a running water, I ask the boatman on the shore he was never asked to tell before thou wert a brook, and nothing more, yet, stream, so dear to me alone, I prize and cherish thee none the less that thou flowest and seen, and praised, and known, in the unfrequented wilderness, bound and admire and lay to heart how good and beautiful thou art, thy florets bloom, thy waters run, and the free birds chaunt thy benison, beauty is beauty, though unseen, and those who love it all their days, find meet reward in their soul serene, and the inner voice of prayer and praise, Staffa, having surveyed the various objects in Iona, we sailed for a spot no less interesting, thousands have described it, few, however, have seen it by torch or candlelight, and in this respect we differ from most tourists, all description, however, of this far-famed wonder must be vain and fruitless, the shades of night were fast descending, and had settled on the still waves and the little group of islets, called the Treshnish Isles, when our vessel approached the celebrated temple of the sea, we had light enough to discern its symmetry and proportions, but the color of the rock a dark gray and the minuter graces of the columns, were indistinguishable in the evening gloom, the great face of the rock is the most wonderful production of nature we ever beheld, it reminded us of the west front of York or Lincoln Cathedral a resemblance, perhaps, fanciful in all but the feelings they both excite especially when the English minster is seen by moonlight. The highest point of Staffa at this view is about 100 feet, in its center is the great cave, called Fingal's Cave, stretching up into the interior of the rock a distance of more than 200 feet. After admiring in mute astonishment the columnar proportions of the rock, regular as if chiseled by the hand of art, the passengers entered a small boat, and sailed under the arch, the boatmen had been brought from Iona, and they instantly set themselves to light some lanterns, and formed torches of old ropes and tar, with which they completely illuminated the ocean hall, into which we were ushered, the complete stillness of the scene, except the low plashing of the waves, the fitful gleams of light thrown first on the walls and ceiling, as the men moved to and fro along the side of the stupendous cave, the appearance of the very roof where different stalactites or petrifactions are visible, the vastness and perfect art or semblance of art of the whole, altogether formed a scene the most sublime, grand, and impressive ever witnessed. The cathedral of Iona sank into insignificance before this great temple of nature, reared, as if in mockery of the temples of man, by the almighty power who laid the beams of his chambers on the waters, and who walk it upon the wings of the wind. Matkalosh says that it is with the morning sun only that the great face of Staffa can be seen in perfection, as the general surface is undulating and uneven. Large masses of light or shadow are thus produced. We can believe, also, that the interior of the cave, with its broken pillars and variety of tints, 
and with the green sea rolling over a dark red or violet colored rock, must be seen to more advantage in the full light of day. Yet we question whether we could have been more deeply sensible of the beauty and grandeur of the scene than we were under the unusual circumstances we have described. The boatmen sang a Gaelic Joram or boat song in the cave, striking their oars very violently in time with the music, which resounded finely through the vault, and was echoed back by roof and pillar. One of them, also, fired a gun, with the view of producing a still stronger effect of the same kind. When we had fairly satisfied ourselves with contemplating the cave, we all entered the boat and sailed round by the clamshell cave where the basaltic columns are bent like the ribs of a ship, and the rock of the bouchale, or the herdsman, formed of small columns, as regular and as interesting as the larger productions, we all clambered to the top of the rock, which affords grazing for sheep and cattle, and is said to yield a rent of L20 per annum to the proprietor. Nothing but the wide surface of the ocean was visible from our mountain eminence, and after a few minutes survey we descended, returned to the boat, and after regaining the steam vessel, took our farewell look of Staffa, and steered on for Tobermory, Highland Notebook, on cheerfulness, I have always preferred cheerfulness to murder, the latter I consider as an act, the former as a habit of the mind, murder is short and transient, cheerfulness fixed and permanent. Those are often raised into the greatest transports of murder, who are subject to the greatest depressions of melancholy, on the contrary, cheerfulness, though it does not give the mind such an exquisite gladness, prevents us from falling into any depths of sorrow, murder is like a flash of lightning, that breaks through a gloom of clouds, and glitters for a moment, cheerfulness keeps up a kind of daylight in the mind, and fills it with a steady and perpetual serenity. Men of austere principles look upon murder as too wanton and dissolute for a state of probation, and as filled with a certain triumph and insolence of heart that is inconsistent with a life which is every moment obnoxious to the greatest dangers. Writers of this complexion have observed, that the sacred person who was the great pattern of perfection, was never seen to laugh. Cheerfulness of mind is not liable to any of these exceptions, it is of a serious and composed nature. It does not throw the mind into a condition improper for the present state of humanity, and is very conspicuous in the characters of those who are looked upon as the greatest philosophers among the heathen, as well as among those who have been deservedly esteemed as saints and holy men among Christians. If we consider cheerfulness in three lights, with regard to ourselves, to those we converse with, and the great author of our being, it will not a little recommend itself on each of these accounts. The man who is possessed of this excellent frame of mind, is not only easy in his thoughts, but a perfect master of all the powers and faculties of the soul, his imagination is always clear, and his judgment and disturbed, his temper is even and unruffled, whether in action or solitude, he comes with a relish to all those goods which nature has provided for him, tastes all the pleasures of the creation which are poured about him, and does not feel the full weight of those accidental evils which may befall him. If we consider him in relation to the persons whom he converses with, it naturally produces love and goodwill towards him. A cheerful mind is not only disposed to be affable and obliging, but raises the same good humor in those who come within its influence. A man finds himself pleased, he does not know why. With the cheerfulness of his companion, it is like a sudden sunshine, that awakens a secret delight in the mind, without her attending to it. The heart rejoices of its own accord and naturally flows out into friendship and benevolence towards the person who has so kindly an effect upon it. 
when I consider this cheerful state of mind in its third relation, I cannot but look upon it as a constant, habitual gratitude to the great author of nature. There are but two things which, in my opinion, can reasonably deprive us of this cheerfulness of heart. The first of these is the sense of guilt. A man who lives in a state of vice and impenitence, can have no title to that evenness and tranquility of mind which is the health of the soul, and the natural effect of virtue and innocence. Cheerfulness in an ill man deserves a harder name than language can furnish us with, and is many degrees beyond what we commonly call folly or madness, atheism, by which I mean a disbelief of a supreme being, and consequently of a future state, under whatsoever title it shelters itself, may likewise very reasonably deprive a man of this cheerfulness of temper. There is something so particularly gloomy and offensive to human nature in the prospect of non-existence, that I cannot but wonder with many excellent writers, how it is possible for a man to outlive the expectation of it. For my own part, I think the being of a God is so little to be doubted, that it is almost the only truth we are sure of, and such a truth as we meet with in every object, in every occurrence, and in every thought. If we look into the characters of this tribe of infidels, we generally find they are made up of pride, spleen, and cattle. It is indeed no wonder that men who are uneasy to themselves, should be so to the rest of the world, and how is it possible for a man to be otherwise than uneasy in himself, who is in danger every moment of losing his entire existence and dropping into nothing, the vicious man and atheist have therefore no pretense to cheerfulness, and would act very unreasonably should they endeavor after it, it is impossible for anyone to live in good humor and enjoy his present existence, who is apprehensive either of torment or of annihilation of being miserable or of not being at all, After having mentioned these two great principles, which are destructive of cheerfulness in their own nature, as well as in right reason, I cannot think of any other that ought to banish this happy temper from a virtuous mind, pain and sickness, shame and reproach, 